Hello everyone, I'm Deborah, New Narrative's Membership Engagement Manager. In Southeast Asia, poverty is often associated with rural communities. As a result, conversations around urban poverty have largely taken a back seat in public discourse. On today's episode, I speak to Prof. Dr. Denison Jayasurya, Chair of the Asian Solidarity Economy Council, and Pete Nicole from Reach Out Malaysia, an organization that works with the rural and urban poor. We discuss their experiences in working closely with this community and the misconceptions surrounding this multifaceted subject. So thank you both for joining us today. Um, I thought maybe we could start with some introductions. So um, today we have Pete Nicole and Professor Denison Jayasurya with us to talk about urban poverty. Would you like to each introduce yourselves? Uh, tell us a little bit about the work that you do around this issue. Um, I'm Pete Nicol. Um, I'm a native of Scotland. I've been resident uh, now in Malaysia for 22 years, uh, having been in the region uh, for over 35. Um, my connection with the issue of urban and rural poverty, uh, particularly in Malaysia, um, was where I founded an organization called Reach Out Malaysia uh, with my wife. Um, we recognized way back about 12, 14 years ago uh, that there was a particular issue uh, with poverty here, um, not just in the big cities but also in rural areas, and we decided to do something about it. Um, the organization itself is voluntary. Uh, we have um, no uh, formal connections with anybody. All of our volunteers also uh, volunteer their time. Um, and all of the uh, stuff that we need uh, for uh, dealing with these issues um, comes through sponsorship from individuals um, or from uh, organizations who decide that they want to get involved in the program or get involved in CSR programs. And we cover basically all of the, the aspects relating to poverty. So we look at um, homelessness, uh, lack of education, lack of housing, medical issues, um, work uh, issues as well, trying to get people employed, and of course the issue of hunger as well for particularly those uh, that are on the street and in some of the really poor rural communities. Uh, so that's uh, that's who I am. Prof? I'm Denison Jayasuriya. I've been working in the area of uh, research and policy advocacy uh, through um, the Institute of Ethnic Studies uh, and on urban poverty, it's largely networking with civil society uh, and also grassroots communities uh, in a sort of areas like uh, development policy, which the government uh, adapts towards uh, poverty line income or multidimensional uh, poverty and uh, various other things, but also looking uh, at poverty from a right to development approach like the UN Special Rapporteur's uh, uh, report on uh, poverty in Malaysia, uh, which was uh, released last year. Some of us were in the background of uh, some of the meetings. So it's cross-sectional work. So that's my background um, uh, in, in this area of work. Thank you. Thank you both. Um, that's quite a bit of uh, expertise we have here. So I'm really excited to have this conversation. What are some basic definitions of poverty that we should have when, when we're talking about this issue? Maybe uh, Prof. Denison, you could start uh, with 
answering this question. If we take the Malaysian context or even the regional context, uh, the most popular um, uh, measurement or indicators have been the poverty line income. So in the earlier Millennium Development Goals, uh, it's then looking at how much does a family need uh, to have a basic uh, life and it's also uh, determined uh, with uh, contextual uh, specific issues vis-a-vis uh, -vis income, clothing, how much do you need to rent a house, uh, uh, education, these sort of things. So much of the definition centered around uh, poverty line incomes uh, which have been found to be inadequate uh, to measure deprivation uh, and real reality of poverty on the ground. So in a country you like Malaysia, statistically there are no poor, but in reality there are huge numbers of poor uh, depending on the measurement and the indications. Uh, so... Um, there are differences in the way different countries like developed countries as opposed to developing countries or the poorest countries of the world. Uh, and, and so uh, it's also a political issue and governments are reluctant to show high levels of poverty because, of, um, uh, because it then shows they are inefficient in delivery uh, or they lose the support uh, and so forth. And so uh, measurements are quite critical. Malaysia was quite badly criticized in the assessment by the UN Special Rapporteur last year, uh, calling for Malaysia to introduce different measuring tools. Uh, and, and then the Special Rapporteur uh, felt that poverty was not below 5% of the household using a very low benchmark, he put it at 15 or 20 percent, which is comparable to many of the researchers uh, and other research institutes, uh, even World Bank, uh, World Bank studies. The Malaysian government rejected the UN repertoire's report. There are other researchers who disagree with them. But most of us from civil society, uh, from ground practice would say, um, that not only in Malaysia, but other parts of Asia, they should change the measurements uh, and truly recognize who are the poor and have effective strategies in addressing poverty in partnership with the poor. I agree absolutely with, uh, with Professor on that, that one of the, uh, the issues is that we always look at income as the benchmark um, for poverty, but um, on the ground we know that that is just one of the symptoms or one of the measurements. Um, we also need to look at access to things like education, uh, access to employment, access to medical, um, because when we're, we're dealing with poverty, people look at poverty as like, oh well, you know, uh, it's poor, it's people can't afford, but poverty is the virus, um, and with any virus there are symptoms, a number of symptoms. And the symptoms for poverty are lack of education, lack of housing, lack of um, uh, work, uh, lack of access to medical, um, an income that is below a sustainable uh, level uh, according to the pricing index. So you cannot address one 
um, and ignore the rest of those particular symptoms. And the example that we always use when we're discussing these types of things is that um, when you have a, a cold um, or a flu, uh, you have a sore throat, you have a cough, you sneeze. Um, if you only take medicine to address the sneezing, um, it will get rid of that, but you don't get rid of the flu because you still have the cough and you still have the sore throat and you still have the fever. So the key to this um, is to be able to address each of the symptoms equally uh, to be able to overcome that particular virus and kill that particular virus. Um, and that's what poverty is. There's a number of symptoms in there that all need to be addressed equally um, and they all need to be benchmarked. Um, and at the moment, uh, most countries in this region do not benchmark. Um, there is still a significant denial um, that there is poverty. Um, there is a significant denial throughout Southeast Asia that there are issues of poverty because poverty means that there has to be investment. So government needs to invest um, and civil society needs to invest to be able to alleviate this and put these safety nets in place. And whenever you have government uh, wanting to, or needing to spend money, they normally try and find a way out of it if they can. So, yeah, Prof's absolutely right, but we need to look at all of the symptoms here to be able to actually really get a grip on the understanding of what the levels of poverty are in each of these nations. You know, I think generally when we think about urban poor, our minds immediately go to the most extreme examples of poverty, you know, homelessness or, you know, people who are really struggling to get by. But I think it's a bit more complex than that. So maybe in your work, Pete, with Reach Out Malaysia, could you give us a picture of who are the urban, uh, the urban poor? What kind of jobs do they work? Um, and what are maybe some of the misconceptions we might have about who is urban poor? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the misconception um, has always been that there are no poor. Um, and this was a misconception that was presented you know, some years ago that uh, we've all been fighting to, to overcome um, and to explain uh, that that is not the case that there is. Um, and that's the first step to dealing with this is to recognize that there is an issue. Um, and I think we're getting there slowly but surely. Um, the, the general sort of outline of, of, of the urban poor, they're, they're broken down into um, a number of, of different uh, groups. Uh, so you have the real hardcore um, who are in an urban environment living on the streets, um, doing odd jobs, uh, do not have the educational skills to be able to get into jobs that would give them a higher income and therefore a higher spending power. You then have those who have uh, sort of jobs, um, but again, the income is not sufficient for them to be able to move on. They have basically just enough to survive. Um, perhaps they have enough for one meal a day, as opposed to two or three meals that, uh, that we eat. And they have no savings, and they have no spending power ability, uh, which is a major issue because without that spending power ability, we, we cannot expand uh, the economy. Um, so one of the, if I also just can go back just to, to something that uh, Professor Denison said there, which is uh, really, really important, um, this issue of connectivity. Um, one of the things that I noticed yesterday in the announcement of this, uh, this fourth phase of the ERP, the Economic Recovery Plan, is to invest a considerable amount of money 
uh, into bringing online connectivity into the rural environment. Um, and that, I think, is something that's going to help immensely uh, to be able to get the agricultural uh, sector uh, of, the, of the society actually online. And again, as Professor says, uh, to cut out the middleman and allow uh, farmers and other producers to be able to go directly to market through these these online platforms and as part of this uh, new norm digi economy that we're going to, all going to have to be working under. So we, we think that is a really good move that will not only help boost that, but will also reduce uh, the levels of hopefully both uh, rural poverty and uh, the need for these guys to come into the city and increase urban poverty levels. Right. And when it comes to the, uh, the urban poor, um, you mentioned there's a few differentiations, people who are hardcore poor, um, those who have a bit more stability. But I, is it only people in the lower income groups who are affected by urban poverty? In your work, have you come across individuals and families from, say, middle class groups who also suffer from urban poverty? Uh, yes, we have. Um, we have guys who do not have um, the savings, um, even at what we would class a middle income level, um, and who are struggling just to pay bills, um, who are rolling uh, you know, their, their bill payments uh, from month to month to try and survive. Um, we've had, um, right across the sector, I've had ex-university professors um, on the street who um, are now basically, not homeless, but are sharing homes with some somebody else, with two or three other people, um, who cannot eat three times a day, uh, cannot eat twice a day. Um, so they're coming to us in terms of food, um, also for, for medical help. Um, they have no savings left. So the, it's right it's right across. So we we see the, 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 the sort of middle income sector of society, whilst it's increasing, uh, we're finding that there are significant bans even within the middle class. So there are those at the top of the middle class who are basically surviving and can put some savings away and are okay. And then we have the middle and the lower bands of the middle class who can't and who are still looking for, for help. And it goes back to um, the ability to, to have medical, the ability to have uh, employment that um, actually does give um, more than just a living wage. When we started this, the sort of declared living wage in Kuala Lumpur was about 900 ringgit uh, per month. Uh, now it's declared at about 2,000 ringgit per month. And anybody who lives in Kuala Lumpur uh, will understand that even earning 2,000 a month, which may put you sort of in the lower to middle, uh, middle class bracket, um, you cannot survive in KL on 2,000 a month. It is physically impossible to do so. So again, one of the measurements that we talked about was looking at income, um, looking at an income that is sustainable not only at the lower levels, but also uh, middle, uh, the middle class bands in society. So the poor, which is traditionally looked at as someone on the street, or which is like very abject poor, but I think in most societies, um, now we are looking at quality of life and what is acceptable, uh, acceptable quality? So you have a family of five living in a one-bedroom flat uh, with or without toilet or something like that. Let's say if you take another country, 
then we would say in our context, like in Malaysia, it's totally unacceptable that father, mother, and all children, including adult children, are living in a one-bedroom flat. So they might be cash poor, but they will be able to survive. They're not in starvation like where there is drought and famine, uh, you know, beyond human capability and work. Because the poor are extremely resilient on the ground uh, in their ability to bounce back. And if you take other countries like Indonesia or Philippines or if we take the Thailand, the informal sector in street vendor, the street vendors, the people on motorbikes, uh, the people doing all kinds of things to survive in the city is enormous. But what we are then benchmarking is what quality of life, educational performance, health indicators, quality of life, quality of relationship, husband, wife, uh, children, um, uh, issues related to drugs, drug dependency, crime, so we are then benchmarking with uh, also, and we haven't spoken on this, happiness. We are benchmarking with quality of life. We are benchmarking with the health-related uh, issues or to the quality of uh, food that we consume uh, because of the kind of uh, marketing and you know the propagation of private sector to fast food and things like that. So that impacts us uh, as well um, in and you know in enhancing uh, quality of life. Right, and I, I do want to bring this question of quality of life to Pete. Um, based on your experience, how do you see quality of life affected by urban poverty? Um, I think one of the, the issues, and again, um, um, is we we don't really manage to have the, the full data on this debt cycle that is in society. Um, the defaulting on credit cards, the defaulting on car HP, the defaulting on uh, TNB bills, that, uh, that kind of data uh, will give us a very good grasp of just how bad it is at the sort of middle class level all the way through those those barriers. Um, I think also we've seen significant change in Malaysia over the years. Um, an awful lot of work has been done uh, to address these issues, to try and get a handle on exactly how bad it is um, so that, you know, that we know what needs to be done and where it needs to be done. But there's an incredible amount of work still to be done uh, to get society back to some sort of balance. It was certainly was out of balance in our opinion uh, previously. Um, that is starting probably to change now, hopefully because of this, uh, this COVID pandemic. And there's a, a very good uh, model that has now been developed um, and is coming out in, I think, the Netherlands, uh, where Holland is looking at what they call this, this donut model. Uh, of the economy, which addresses all of these issues. So it addresses the issues of poverty, it addresses the issues of the environment, it addresses all of those issues that will actually hopefully make people's lives a lot better, um, reduce the debt cycles that people have, 
introduce um, uh, incomes that are going to allow people to be able to afford things that make them happy and therefore change that kind of mental uh, stress uh, that a lot of societies find themselves under. And it will it will work in, in whether you're a developed nation or whether you're a developing nation or whether you're a nation that is trying to develop and get something there. That model seems to be able to work. Um, and we're hoping that you know, the Malaysian government will also have a look at that model um, and see what can be implemented here to be able to address uh, those issues um, of the urban poor, those that are on the brink now um, because of COVID, who were okay, but now because of COVID will likely fall into those sort of classified poverty levels that uh, we currently have. Sorry, Pete, could you describe what the donut model is for people who are unfamiliar? Sure. Um, it's basically a model, um, an, an economic model. And what it does is it, um, it identifies the key areas uh, in uh, a working developed society or what a developing society needs to do. Um, so it looks at the issues of investment in environment, uh, the environment then creating uh, employment, um, also creating a much healthier workplace um, uh, for everybody. Um, it creates um, an economic model where jobs become more readily available, um, job uh, incomes are at a higher sustainable level than they currently are, um, and also the issues of, of medical as well so that medical is available to all um, and it is basically free to all. So it's not a, not a, um, a socialist model uh, as such, it's more of a new style of economic model. So incorporating more holistic ideas of progress and development such as mental health into uh, policy planning? Yeah, rec recognizing those issues um, actually not just addressing them but bringing them forward as you say as policy issues um, and linking all of those together to create this sustainable society that uh, that people are looking for. Um, Prof Dennison you mentioned Indonesia and Thailand earlier as models um, in terms of more grass ground up development that we could perhaps model are there other countries you think that Malaysia could emulate or that in general are doing a good job of addressing urban poverty? If we take Japan and if we take South Korea, there's a great call to shift back uh, to the rural. Um, and there is introduction, even in China now, of uh, social enterprises, social entrepreneurship, more collective-based uh, economic agenda uh, where the rural is actually revitalized through online banking. I think the Chinese example there uh, would be quite strong with the work done by Alibaba's group uh, in setting up uh, community IT centers in the rural which does online marketing of their produce and online purchasing and the logistics companies deliver these goods within a day or two uh, in a way that the rural and urban are connected uh, through private suppliers uh, and so forth. But I think quite critical, which Malaysia has not picked up, 
which Indonesia and um, Thailand, as I mentioned, is decentralization. Malaysia is extremely centralized. We do not have local government elections. We have played it down to such an extent that local communities are disempowered. They are not electing local leaders uh, at the village level or at the urban neighborhood level. Uh, so I think, I think some decentralization, some local level planning, some empowerment of local communities to determine what are local priorities, uh, a little bit or more of depoliticization on the ground at the neighborhood level is quite critical. I, I'm not sure whether in Indonesia that happens, uh, but definitely their ground leaders at the village are all elected and budgets and budgets are provided. Thailand, likewise, the villagers are given the budget. They do local planning, whether it's to invest in a school, whether on a bridge, uh, on economic development project, uh, and so forth. So I think those are critical. Right. With COVID-19, we are seeing the inequalities of our society really front and center. So what do you think a phenomenon, a crisis like COVID-19 will have on issues related to poverty, especially the urban poor, Prof. Denison? Because the poor at the bottom, and when I visited some of the people in the flats, they said, look, we have to survive, we have to make sure, uh, and they did. But they are disadvantaged in education for their children. Not all of them have a laptop or a computer or internet connection or the database uh, for maybe three children, four children in the house to make a switch. My granddaughter from day one could use the iPad uh, and they have the internet connection. So she didn't miss her kindergarten class at all. But here the stories of uh, kids in Sabah who had to go to the top of a mountain uh, to then get the internet through the satellite connection uh, and then had to make you know tables out of the tree uh, to sit down to link so education wise they might be deprived i think healthcare system in malaysia opened up quite well uh, but depends on the distance from where you are to the nearest hospital uh, or clinic uh, in that sense uh, health uh, but they would be, and, and I agree with Keith, there aren't any new data to show um, or studies that someone had put quickly to show um, how the informal sector at the bottom uh, lost out. Right. Sorry, Prof. Denison, to cut you off because we're, we're, we're going on a bit. Um, I just wanted to ask Pete, uh, you had mentioned earlier that one of the major problems in your work is that there's a denial of poverty in Malaysia. Do you think one positive outcome of the pandemic is that there is better awareness of this problem in Malaysia? Uh, absolutely, yes. Um, one of the things that a lot of us have been doing over the years is to raise the awareness uh, that there is an issue um, and something very positive coming out of this, uh, this COVID pandemic uh, is that awareness is increasing. 
Uh, we're seeing it um, all over social media, people going out to help uh, as much as they can because of this crisis. Um, picking up on, uh, on uh, the professor's uh, statements there, I absolutely agree with him. Um, if we are looking now at this new sort of gig economy um, that will have to come into place uh, after we start to lift the restrictions uh, from uh, or during this COVID pandemic, the gig economy requires education. And therefore, there's going to have to be a very strong focus on raising the education levels and making sure that everybody does have a proper education to help support that gig economy. The second part of it really is also on things like um, the 400, 600 million ringgit uh, that has been provided to the likes of uh, Teco National uh, to provide funding uh, for SMEs in Malaysia. So the lady who uh, makes cookies and sells them uh, on a stall on the street if she can get access to some of that funding to help not just sustain her business but to grow her business, then we will start to see a more vibrant economy and it will come back much faster. So those are the things that we'd be looking for uh, in terms of moving forward and taking advantage of the situation that we've all gone through over the last few months with this particular pandemic. And one last question. What can ordinary people do to help? How can we get more involved in this issue of urban poverty and poverty reduction? Professor? Okay, I, I, I would think uh, the poor actually want a way out. They are not wanting charity. Uh, Malaysia, unfortunately, due to political and other influence, um, uh, contrast to the earlier years when it was building self-help self-reliance. This was the Tung Razak's uh, Green Book um, uh, development uh, agenda and so forth. Um, and I think we need to find ways um, that will not um, re-inculcate a handout, uh, but invest into uh, capability building, like what Keith just now said about, let's say, better equipped with uh, IT, uh, making um, uh, internet connections faster, more affordable, no tax on, you know, mobile apps uh, uh, in terms for marketing and business, building capacities of people and empowering uh, them, I think becomes, and engaging the poor in the development planning. It shouldn't be top-down. The poor know uh, what they need, how to get out. Uh, politicians and policymakers need to hear them. Um, and I think we need to go to the ground much more. Um, and, and I think the poor are resilient. Um, and uh, if we build their capabilities and capacities and address root causes um, uh, and ensure that I think there will be an overall improvement in the quality of life of ordinary people where they can find themselves um, more responsible in, in and their you know, feedback uh, as citizens of the land or citizens of ASEAN uh, would be much stronger. In that same score, uh, Malaysians and the Malaysian public uh, need to rethink how they see ASEAN, the ASEAN vision, ASEAN community, uh, as one regional hub 
So we should see Indonesians, Thai, Filipinos as brothers and sisters in the Syrian family rather from the eye of exploitativeness, greed, um, and trying to get something from them or shortchange them. Um, so a, a morality approach uh, along with sustainability is critical. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Pete, do you have... Yes, I do. I would, I would absolutely agree again with uh, Professor Dennison. Um, the poor um, that we work with day in and day out do not want charity. What they want is help. Um, so what we need to do is we need to look at the most effective ways that we can help them as individuals. So when, for example, at a very, very, very hardcore level, um, going out and just giving food to someone on the street and walking away doesn't help. It helps alleviate that person's hunger for that period of time, but it doesn't change their circumstance. What we have to do is we have to think about, okay, if you're going to give somebody food, what else are you going to do? You know, you find out who they are, you find out what skills they have, because most of the people who are hardcore poor actually do have skills. They have something they have done before, uh, whether they are carpenters or plumbers or electricians, they have some skills. So we need to tap that to be able to then use that to find them employment. That's how you help. The idea is to get people off the street. The idea is to get people into jobs where they have a sustainable income that gives them a better quality of life. Um, so again, teaching anybody um, how to transact business online, um, just helping anybody understand that, how to set up a website, how to advertise their goods um, on any app, um, how, to, how to use TikTok on your phone um, and use that to market your cookies, your nasi lamak, your whatever. Those are the things that we can do as people to help change the way that other people operate their businesses going forward because that's what's going to drive the economy as we move through this recovery stage and then come out and exit this particular uh, pandemic. So it's up to us um, to do what we need to do to help to teach, um, also to help create the opportunities for people to improve uh, their lives by whatever way we can whether it's networks, whether we know people in organizations that are looking to uh, employ, interrogating the skills that people have, and then being able to place them where they can best use those skills for themselves and also for the organizations. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time to speak to me. I think that was a really illuminating and informative chat, um, and I really appreciate taking the time to speak to me. So thank you both. Our thanks to Professor Denison Jayasurya and Pete Nicole for joining us on this week's episode of Southeast Asia Dispatches. Next week, be sure to tune in to New Narrative's Political Agenda, our fortnightly podcast on current affairs in Singapore. And check out our website at newnarrative.com for more stories from Southeast Asia. If you enjoy what we're doing, please do support our work by becoming a member of New Narrative at newnarrative.com join. Membership start at just 52 US dollars a year, that's just one US dollar a week. Or you can donate at newnarrative.com slash donate. We are trying to raise 75,000 US dollars by the end of June to survive. This is Deborah signing off. Have a great week ahead. Jumpa lagi!